You're listening to the Nutmeg Arena by the Nutmeg Assist. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TNA podcast brought to you by the Nutmeg Assist. Myself Ritvik, the host for today's show and I'm joined by my co-host Chris as usual and today we have a special guest once again. He has written the book The Red Wine and the Arepas which is on Venezuelan football. His name is Jordan Florit. He has written for uh, websites like These Football Times before and he's also written a piece for the Natmega Assist last year. So, welcome to the show Jordan. Pleasure having uh, you on. Uh thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um very much appreciate your support last summer as well. Uh getting the book off of the ground and making it reality was very much um dependent on people like yourself giving me the platform to get the message out so I very much appreciate it and in in the year that's passed um quite a few websites and podcasts that helped me out have um have sadly decided to no longer continue so it's really good to see that you're still going strong yep yeah jordan so and i welcome chris as well to the show chris yeah very welcome very glad to be here uh, yeah, really looking forward to it. Speaking to Jordan, should be good. Yep, yep, definitely. And we're going to discuss, you know, about your book as well. But we'll probably come to that a little later. But starting on, you know, I mean, basically, we'll be talking about the Venezuelan Venezuelan football. We'll start with the history of Venezuelan football, basically. So, I mean, Venezuela is probably one of those countries where one of those South American countries where. Like football was not probably you know the great, great uh, I mean a great sport at at one point of time, but they, but they've gradually grown into that. So, what's your whole take on Venezuelan football history, Jordan? Since you've done a lot of research on that as well. Yes, yeah, so traditionally it's a baseball a baseball nation, very much against the grain of, of South America in general. And uh, the the reason for that is that historically the relationship between the United States and Venezuela, um, the Firstly, the relationship's always been there, and, and secondly, it used to be um, very amicable, not not like what we see today. And the the relationship led to a lot of uh, the American oil industry um, locating itself in Venezuela. It's a very oil-rich country, and you had companies like Shell um, with a heavy influence and um, presence in the country. And that was the the main reason why baseball became the sport of choice. It was the sport that the American workers manning the oil companies wanted to watch, wanted to play. Uh, and that's where the financing went. Uh, but despite that, football in Venezuela um, isn't a recent uh, development in the sense that you know, a game was played as far back as in the 1800s, that it was only actually two days ago that they were celebrating um, Venezuela's day of football, uh, which dates back to when the first game in Venezuela took place, which was uh, on the 16th of July um, in 1876. And that was itself hosted by a uh, man from Wales, a Welshman called um, Mr. Simpson, who was there working in one of the gold mines. So despite the fact that it has traditionally been a baseball nation. Uh, it does have a, a footballing history, all be one that didn't really take hold until the early, to be honest, early 21st century is when it really started getting a, a footing on the world stage. Yeah and, yeah, and also if you look at the international tournaments, uh, probably if you look at the Copa America or uh, the FIFA World Cup, Venezuela probably haven't been as influential or as, you know, 
uh, impactful as one would probably want. Uh, I mean, compared to you know other South American countries. So, what do you think this is down to? Yeah. So, when it comes to the World Cup, um, Venezuela is the only country in in South America, the only comparable nation that hasn't qualified for a World Cup. Um, in 2002, Ecuador qualified for their first World Cup, which has since left Venezuela on their own. And when it comes to the the Copa America. Um, they are yet to to win the competition uh, at all. And in fact, they didn't take part in the first 27 Copper America competitions at all. Um, it wasn't until 1967 that they, they finally took part in a Copper America. But as, as surprising as that sounds, they didn't even play a competitive football game um, in in any format until 1965, um, you know the year before England won their World Cup. By the time that Uruguay had already won a few World Cups, Brazil had already won a few World Cups. Venezuela hadn't even played a competitive game. Um, so, in terms of an international impact, you know they didn't have one. And between 1967, their first Copa America, and uh, 2007, 40 years later, they didn't win a single game. Um, at the Copa America at all. They won one in their first competition in 67 and their second win didn't come until when they hosted it themselves in 2007. So they really did have an abysmal record uh, on the international stage um, entirely. Uh, It was was so bad that between uh, the year 2000 um, and going back to 1981, They'd actually only won two FIFA fixtures. Uh, they won one in 1993, which was against Bolivia. Um, but before that, they hadn't won a friendly. Uh, sorry, they hadn't won a fixture since um, since 1981. So it, it was a country where football it wasn't just not paid attention to, uh, attention to. Like it, it barely existed on on the international stage. That's interesting. Uh, what about the domestic league? Uh, from a, from a European point of view, Jordan, when you, whenever you think of this, the South American league, leagues or uh, football leagues within South America, sorry, notably Argentina and Brazil get listed as the main two. Uh, and probably given given the research that you've probably done for your book as well, is is that something that can ever get changed or can, can Venezuela football ever get up to the level that those two countries are at domestically? In terms of just football, um, it, it definitely can. Uh, Uruguay, for example, you know they won multiple World Cups. They they have a track record of excellent world class players. Like you know, most recently, you know, Suarez and Cavani uh, and, and Diego Forlan. Just and that's just strikers. And their population is three million. Um, Venezuela's ten times that size. They got a population of thirty million. Um, they're an oil rich country. Economically, at the moment, you know, it is a it's an absolute disaster out there. But that doesn't have to, and hopefully, will not remain the case. Um, and when when the time comes that their economy is stronger and that they can invest a, a, a proper amount of money in football, they already have things that are, are in their favour. And the Venezuelan domestic um, scene has very much improved in the past uh, twenty years to the point where. If, if the economic situation in Venezuela was to improve, they do have um, raw talent and they do have infrastructure that is blossoming to take advantage of that. Brilliant, brilliant. And is that, is that, sh- is that showing uh, 
is that shown as well in the development of young players coming through domestically? Yeah, the so in and the players are producing. Yeah, massively so. So in Venezuela in two thousand and one were uh, taken over by a manager called uh, Richard Paez. He was the first Venezuelan to manage the national team in, a, in competitive fixtures. And this was really symbolic of how Venezuelan football uh, was up until that that time. It was very much a game played by foreigners within Venezuela. The domestic league was traditionally dominated by uh, settler teams from Europe. So the, the teams that won the titles in the early years of its professional setup were teams like uh, Maratimo from Portugal, uh, Portuguese, uh, Deportivo Italia, Deportivo Española. Like the, the the clues are in the names. These these were teams that were made up of Europeans based around their communities. Whereas the game didn't really develop itself within Venezuela. The the game existed, but it very much just played host to other countries playing football within its country. Yeah. And that was even borne out in the national team, where the national team was managed by. Um, foreign coaches and you even had players from other countries uh, naturalizing and, and representing Venezuela that really changed in 2007 when Richard Paez became manager um, the first thing one of the first things he did was he stopped calling up players to the national team that weren't Venezuelan born and bred um, and he completely went about changing their identity through the the way they played football before they went into every game basically presuming that they were going to lose and very much a case of let's lose by as few goals as possible. Whereas Pius very much changed the attitude to we're die trying um, and, and started playing attacking football. And, you know, in the, in the early, well, in the first 12 months, in fact, like they didn't, they didn't win a game under Pius, but they put in really strong attacking performances that really surprised people. And that, that eventually bore fruit and they, for the first time in their history, won competitive back-to-back games and went on a, a four-game winning streak, um, which which included like a, a very historical two-nil win over Uruguay. Uh, so things really improved then, and, and Pius left a, a legacy in not only changing the face of the national team, but um, one of the final things he did in 2007, which was when Venezuela um, hosted the Copa America, is not only did he get them out of the group stage for the first time in their history, but he encouraged the Venezuelan Football Federation to make a rule change to the domestic league. Um, and that rule change was that every lineup uh, had to have at least one under 20 being fielded at all times. So every starting 11 had to have an under 20. And if that player was substituted, he'd have to be replaced by another under 20. And that's really dragged the quality of the national team up through the youth levels, which we're now seeing benefit the senior team. They're now 25th in FIFA World Rankings. Um, that's the highest they've ever been. And it's about a climb of 45 to 50 places in the past three to four years alone. Excellent. That's excellent. Uh, again, I don't have too yeah. much uh, from, from a European point of view. Whenever you look over to the South American leagues, like I said in that previous question, your mind instantly takes you to Argentina and Brazil. And you've seen the likes of Chile producing better good players over the last 10 years. Um, and similar to what Marcelo Bielsa done there. Then you've had the same with Uruguay as well. They're starting to produce more players. So it can only be good then if Venezuela can actually follow that and maybe come into a new generation themselves and produce... Yep. Uh, produce young players too. Yeah, and uh, I mean, touching on the point that Chris said, uh, I like. I, I mean, 
we probably have a few players already from Venezuela who's who's played in Europe and who's kind of made a name, although they've not been probably uh, probably the trail blazing the trail blazers or you know uh, the eye catches. They've had some uh, good players play in Europe, especially the likes of Solomon Rondon, who who's played uh, who, who's who's a striker and who's who I mean a lot of people know already. We, I mean, we had Juan Arango as well, Thomas Rincon, and Amora Bieta, who played for Bilbao. And probably currently, I would say, Joseph Martinez of Atlanta United is uh, one of those names who's, you know, catching the eye. So, it's not like Venezuela don't have, I mean, didn't, don't or did not have any players who, you know, played in Europe and went unnoticed. So there are a uh, you know fair share of players as well from Venezuela who's who's made some name in Europe, and Jordan from from the names I stated or from the names which I not stated as well. Uh, do you I mean which players probably do you think have kind of made an impact, especially for, I mean considering from point where they made an impact with respect to the country for their country, I mean inspiring the kids and you know the young generation. Yeah, of course. So, like the the names that the names that you mentioned are the ones that, of course, um, take the headlines. They've had the biggest impact. Um, Juan Arango really um, being the the main one in the past twenty years. Because although Salomon Rondon is the one that you know everyone in England is going to know the name of across Europe, uh, the impact uh, Juan Arango made was arguably arguably bigger. He went to Mallorca at a young age. Um, he spent half of his European career in Mallorca um, and half of it in, in Germany with um, Borussia Mönchengladbach. And um, that's a really important uh, time period that he spent in Europe because before him, he was already in the national team at the turn of the century at a very young age. But before him, the amount of Venezuelan players that had played uh, in Europe w- was absolutely minimal. Um, I think he, he made the move to Europe in around 2001, 2002. And it was only 10 years earlier that the first Venezuelan to play in Europe um, happened, which was a a guy called Stalin Rivas. He moved to Standard Liège in Belgium in 1991. And he's he's widely considered the best or one of the best Venezuelan players that there has ever been, but barely anyone outside of Venezuela has heard of him. Um, Which, considering he has plaudits, is quite quite surprising at the age of um, 18, 19, he was already in the senior Venezuela team and France football, um, who have been a an authority on, on global football, world football for many years, had him named as one of the 20 stars of the future to look out for. And then he got this move to, to Belgium. But he said, when I met him in, in Caracas, he said one of the big problems was that in in Belgium, nobody took him seriously as a footballer because when they learned that he was from Venezuela, all they wanted to to talk about were um, the beauty queens of Venezuela. They've got the the record for the most amount of of winners of beauty pageants across the world. Um, and then after that, they just wanted to to talk about maybe drugs because it was next to Colombia um, or baseball. The last thing that they wanted to to discuss with him, despite the fact he was a professional footballer was football so his his time in europe was really short-lived but when richard Pius came to the the national team job in 2001 10 years later he 
needed he knew that he needed to change the way that Venezuelan players were viewed because the problem wasn't their ability or their talent it was very much the way they were viewed his his belief um as the belief of his brothers are as well he's one of 12 brothers um half of which all have a professional football background his view is that Venezuelan football players are technically as good as Brazilian players, but what they lack is A, the reputation that Brazil has rightly earned over the past 100 years on the world stage, but also the game intelligence. Um, we, we talk a lot about good young South American players coming to Europe at a young age, um, but then we need to remember a lot of them lose their way and don't fulfil the talent that we all think they have. I mean, a lot of the time, that's because they don't have the game intelligence. They they can they can play a good pass, but they don't know when to play that good pass. And um, Paez said that that's very much the problem in Venezuela as well. A lot of the players, because the quality traditionally of football in the country was low, and the quality that you're seeing on on TV was minimal because all the TV was baseball. Kids were teaching themselves football. They were learning on the streets and they were picking up bad habits. They weren't learning things like taking your first touch out of your feet or, or knowing when to pick a pass. So you had you had very good players that just lacked game intelligence. So Paez knew that what he needed to change was the, the way that Venezuelan players were viewed in the eye of the world. And the thing that he, he did, which was most important, was arranging for the national team to play in Europe and against European opposition, because traditionally Venezuela were only playing World Cup qualifiers and Copa America games all against the same nine teams, the same South American opposition, because all the European teams that were playing friendlies against South American teams were playing against Brazil or Argentina. They had no interest in playing other teams if they were going to travel to South America. So what Paez knew was important was to get the funding from the Federation to bring Venezuela, the national team, to Europe to play friendlies. Uh, so that's what he did. And the the biggest marker of, of success that that had was when he took charge compared to when he left in 2007. The, the number of Venezuelans playing their football in Europe that made up the national team literally reversed from a handful playing in Europe to only a handful still playing in Venezuela. He really did flip the ratio, um, which has been to to the benefit of players that we see today, like Salomon Rondon, Thomas Rincon, Roberto Rosales and, and Josef Martinez, which have really benefited from what the generation before, whose names you won't know, laid laid the platform for them to achieve that the biggest venezuelan football heroes of the past 20 years are the ones whose names you don't know because they didn't get the opportunity to play in europe or to a high level in europe but what they did was open the door for this generation to do so yeah and uh, i mean coming to the 2019 copa america just just for a second to talk on the managers Venezuela actually managed to qualify for the knockouts where they met Leo Messi's Argentina and they got knocked out of of I mean after a 2-0 loss in that game. Rafael Dudamel was their manager last year. This year, I mean at the at the beginning of this year, uh, he came up with an announcement that he was leaving as a manager and he actually blamed his relationship with officials for that. And right now, the manager is Jose Pesero, who is a former Portuguese footballer as well. So, 
did you think or do you think that Dudamel had done a good job in during his spell and probably uh, what's your take on the new manager Peseiroes? Dudamel did a great job, um, regardless of his reasons for leaving, which. What he said is true. He left because his relationship had soured with the Federation. 100% what he said is true. What he didn't expand on is why his relationship with the Federation got to that point. And there's there's blame most definitely on both sides. Dudamel is a strange character. From, from everyone I met who know him, has worked with him, coached him, played with him, he, he's a very odd character, um, but also he knew how to play agents off of against uh, one another. He knew how to play the Federation off against agents and, and even people within the Federation. And a lot of people that know Venezuelan football well, a lot of Venezuelan fans could see that in the lineups that he chose. Often the his starting 11 or even just the 23-man, 25-man call-ups that he made for friendlies and, and international competitions were not necessarily the best 11 or the best squad that he could have picked. And over time, it became apparent that certain players, one of which was Adalberto Peñaranda, the Watford midfielder, who we don't actually see play that much for Watford, um, was really a case in point. He kept being selected and picked even though he was not playing in, in Europe at all, whereas players that play in the same position as him, um, most notably Jefferson Sotelo, who is doing wonderful things at Santos in the past 18 months, were, was either not getting picked at all um, or he was getting picked and was still on the bench, despite arguably being one of the best players Venezuela have of this generation. But Dudamel did a great job. He was the one responsible for taking 45 uh, places up the FIFA World Rankings in the three, uh, three and a half, four years that he was in charge. But what he didn't do was see a World Cup qualifier through start to finish. And that's what a lot of people were looking forward to. The Federation, the domestic league, everyone's been pulling in the same direction to work towards qualification for Qatar in 2022. And that was with Dudamel as a main component. And by resigning just three months before what would have been the start of World Cup qualifiers had it not been for the coronavirus pandemic, was um, was very unsettling. A lot of people saw it coming. The Federation knew it was going to happen, probably in their heart of hearts, and Dudamel did too. He was actively looking for a way out. He hadn't been living in Venezuela for many years. He'd been living in Colombia. Um, and he he wanted out of that situation because it had become toxic and the presidency of the federation was going to change and when it did change he knew that he would not be in a a safe space as it were because the guy that's become the president of the venezuelan football federation a guy called jesus berardinelli um used to be very close to dudamel but they they fell out to the point where dudamel was going to take him take him to court so he's now the president of the Venezuelan Football Federation, and that happened within weeks of Dudamel resigning. The problem is the federation couldn't afford to sack Dudamel because he'd negotiated a very well-paid contract, one of the best-paid contracts in South America, and to sack him would have cost them an extraordinary amount of money. So it was actually a, a blessing in disguise, really, that he resigned to uh, to take the club job at Mineros in Brazil, um, which then didn't go well for him. Six weeks later, he was fired from the job. The the new manager, Jose Pacero, um, having known who else was on the shortlist for the job, 
through um, people I was talking to at the time, Federation employees, uh, players, uh, agents. I was underwhelmed by his appointment. There was uh, Hernan Crespo, the former Chelsea striker and Inter Milan striker. His name was on the shortlist to become the job. Uh, Jorge Sampaoli, who's previously managed... Um, I think it's Chile and Argentina uh, and was at Santos most yeah, recently. Yeah. He was on the shortlist for the job. And so was uh, Luigi uh, Di Biagio, who's an, a former Italian midfielder who's been yeah. involved in managing the youth teams in Italy. All these names were far more exciting and promising than the guy that got the job. Uh, and obviously we've now had him in the job for six months um, and we're yet to see what he could do because... The pandemic has meant no football's been played. So move, moving forward, then that you just you just mentioned there that it was a bit of a, an underwhelming appointment when you given the shortlist of names that were available. Are they optimistic about the up and coming uh, World Cup qualifiers, and are the are they, are they, have they got much expectation? Yeah. So the the expectation is is for Venezuela to to qualify for the World Cup. In in terms of the federation coming out, in terms of setting like professional objectives qualification is the expectation and I fully believe that if if it looked like they weren't going to make it early doors um, I wouldn't be surprised to see them make a rash uh, decision and sack Pissero, um if, yeah. if they had the option to um, and the fans from a purely footballing perspective will be expecting them to qualify for their first World Cup because the talent is there but also Venezuelan football fans are very experienced in, in knowing that there is far more off the pitch that dictates Venezuela's success than on the pitch. And most countries don't need to worry about these things. But the the level of professionalism within the Venezuelan Football Federation is never guaranteed. Um, it is constantly reliant on the stability of the country, be it economically or, or politically. And for many years now, the federation has been... Uh, very, very shaky. And we've seen that with the, the national team players um, numerous times over the past five years publicly speak out uh, against the federation. Um, most recently at the beginning of last year when Venezuela got a new kit supplier, which, you know, most fans, something you never worry about other than having a preference for Nike or Adidas, for example, as long as the kit looks nice, you don't really care. Whereas in, in Venezuela, the, the new kit supplying deal, they didn't even supply Venezuela with kit for their very first friendly in this new kit. They forgot to send off um, the the team's kit. So they turned up for friendlies in Spain without any kit. And at the last minute, Givova, the Italian manufacturer, sent them a, lo a load of shirts and shorts, which they'd actually bought from um, you know the sports store Decathlon. Um, yeah. and marathon they'd literally bought uh, template kits from a, a sports shop and delivered them to the venezuela training camp and said oh please can you wear these and can you stick our brand logo onto the front of the shirts yeah and this is a professional uh, professional <laughs> football team a, a professional federation so in terms of quality on the pitch the expectation and the belief for them to qualify is there but everything else that goes off away from the pitch is so influential in Venezuela that, that literally anything could happen. And is there any, yeah. is there any players to look out for then from Venezuela? Any, we, met, we touched on some of the names there that have done really well. Uh, Rondon, uh, Martinez now, he's 27 now, Martinez, isn't he? It seems like, I think people still consider him to be like a young prospect. Mm -hmm. but is there any young, is there any 
young prospects at under 21 level or just around that age that we should watch out for in the, in the qualifiers oh. yeah definitely so so around that age um just just above that that age bracket you said there's um Yangel Herrera uh he's a defensive midfielder contracted by Manchester City they signed him uh, I think in 2017 now but he spent um the whole time out on loan he's been out on loan at New York City um, then he's been out on loan at Huesca in Spain last season. And then this year he's been on loan with um, Granada. And as of today, he's being linked with a permanent move to Valencia for next season. Uh, Manchester City are interested in Valencia's midfielder uh, by the name of Torres. And it could be yeah. that um, Torres joins City and, and Yangel Herrera goes to Valencia. But he he's considered as the future captain of the national team. He's about 21, 22 years old at the moment. Very good player. Um, and in the same breath and the same generation, you've got Jefferson Soteldo, who's at Santos, um, publicly said a few months ago that his dream is to play for Manchester United. He's certainly good enough to play in Europe. Um, and at his at his young age, having not left South America yet, whether he could succeed at that level um, is is an unknown. And then the other one is um, Walker Farinez, a goalkeeper who's just uh, joined the French club uh, Lens on loan for the season. He's a really big talent. As for under as for Venezuelans under the age of 21, uh, the vast majority of talented Venezuelan players under 21 will still be uh, in Venezuela, um, and their players like Anderson Contreras at Caracas, a, a defensive midfielder um, who, again, is considered a, a future star at national, international level. Um, and then you have a few players at a team called Estudiantes de Merida, uh, Ronaldo Rivas, Christian Rivas and Christian Flores, um, all of which will, I imagine, be making the step to Europe at some point in the next few years. Yeah, and you you touched upon Wilker Farinas there. This is actually a, a Patreon question as well from our patron, Dieter Van Gogh. So you were talking about Farinas's loan move to Racing Lons in France. So I, I think Lons got promoted to Ligue 1. And yes. he'll be playing Ligue 1 next year. And that is actually a loan deal. And Farinas is a player. I mean, I, I was talking about the Copa America game where they got knocked out by Argentina. So, Farinas had made a bad error there, if I'm not wrong, if I remember it correctly. But he is a player who, who I mean, who's, who's known to have a lot of potential. And he's one of those players who's very highly rated as well in Europe. I mean, I, I've seen people, uh, goalkeeper, goalkeeper uh, people or goalkeeper analysts say good things about Farinas and the talent that he has. So, do you think this uh, move to Lens, to France, is probably the big break for him, a chance for him to prove that he is good enough. Yeah, ma massively so. Um, and there's the option in that loan for it to become a permanent uh, a permanent transfer. Um, and I, I fully expect that to be, to be taken up. And if it isn't, probably it will be because another European club uh, managed to to get in there. I don't know if the contract clause is that they have first uh, first dibs on a permanent transfer um, and whether they need to make that decision by a certain time. For example, a few, a few years ago, Southampton had um, Toby Alderweireld on loan from Atletico Madrid. We had the option to buy him. I'm a Southampton fan. We had the option to buy him for 10 million. 
Um, but if we were going to do that, we needed to let Atletico Madrid know by the January. Um, we had him on a season-long loan. We supposedly forgot to let them know. Um, and by the time we came round to saying, yeah, we're taking for 10 million, um, that that contract clause was no longer exclusive and Tottenham came in and stole him from under our nose. So I, I fully expect Farinez to be taken up um, by a European club. He's been offered out to European teams before. Last year, um, an agent that I was talking to had offered him to to West Ham and they turned him down because they they thought he was too short. And that's been one of the things that has held him back um, so far is he's not the tallest goalkeeper at all. Um, I'm not even sure if he hit six foot. He might be just under six foot. Um, And until he was about 14, 15 years old, he played up front. He, He didn't come through the youth ranks as a goalkeeper, but he is incredibly... Um, adept. He's very, very quick across his line, uh, very agile. And some of the some of the shots that he makes, you just you don't know how he does it. I fully expect him to to move to Europe in the mould of the other South American goalkeepers that we've said in recent years. None of which are the tallest. Kaylor Navas um, isn't tall at all, um, and he's had a, a great career in Europe. Um, likewise with David Ospina, I know a lot of Arsenal fans. You know, aren't ever going to rate Ospina highly because he's got an error in him. Um, but he he very much has the ability to, to succeed in Europe. And it was no surprise that during the Copa America last year, um, Barcelona were being linked uh, with with signing him. I do expect this move to France to be the beginning of a career in Europe. Yeah, great. And and like you said, uh, there are there are a fair share of you know, short goalkeepers, like we said, David Ospina, Keylor Navas, who are both, both Americans. And uh, you you also have Jan Sommer, who's like, I guess, 182 or 183 centimeters tall, but he's doing a very good job there. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that uh, it, it will all, you know, come down to height, but... Yeah, this this is very much possible. And you uh, and another another name or another goalkeeper who is probably a little short is Matt Ryan, the Brighton goalkeeper who's from Australia. He he's mm-hmm. been really good for Brighton and he's he's kind of made a name in Europe too. But he's also not not tall and he he's also a short keeper. So I I don't uh, necessarily think that might hold him back if if he has the mentality to break out. So yeah, that that's something. I mean, whatever you mentioned there is pr- pretty much uh, pretty much sums up Farines. And you had Shay Given as well. Shay Given was a relatively short goalkeeper. He had a very successful Premiership. Yeah, correct. Uh, as well, so um, I don't, I don't, correct. I don't. I, I think, I think as a keeper, um, I think if, if you've got agility, I don't really think your height height plays too much can be too much of a detriment if you if you say like around that bracket that you mentioned there Jordan just under the six foot six foot I think if you're very if you've got agility to sort of go against that then I don't I wouldn't think that the height would be too much of an issue no not at all it's one of those things that um, you know, as soon as a goalkeeper gets caught out or makes a fumble, where a, whereas a taller goalkeeper might get a free pass, straight away commentators will start pointing out, oh, you know, he's short. It, it's a, it's more, 
it's more perception whether uh, over whether it actually matters. And unfortunately, in Europe, we've still got this perception that you know goalkeepers and defenders have to centre backs need to be like six foot three. Um, yeah. But like like you said about Matt Ryan, uh, Rithwick is also at Brighton. You've got um, Dan Byrne, who's like six foot six and plays um, left back as well as as well as centre back. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. so Brighton are breaking the mould twice there because it's very rare you get a left or right back that's, you know, that tall. Correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I see Dan Burns there and I say like, oh, this is this, this is different. And a Potter is definitely a manager, you know, who, who does things his own way. So, good full marks for innovation. Maybe not so, not so good marks for, you know, the season that they've had. Okay, so moving on to the final part of this podcast where we'll be discussing about your book, Red Wine and Arepas. So again, this this is a pattern question from the same guy, Dieter Van Gogh. So he asked you, what was your motivation, you know, in writing a book on Venezuelan football? Uh, so I've been following Venezuela since um, around 2012, um, so, so about eight years now, um, and I'd always, I'd always taken an interest in the country since I first started uh, learning about it. I'm a big reader. Um, I normally get through like a book a week, and I, I'd started reading about uh, South American countries in general. My granddad uh, was from Spain, and that's sort of how the interest um, started. Because I, I lost him at a young age, and. When he died, I lost contact with the Spanish side of my family. So I was sort of like reading to fill the gap, um, which, which led me to South America, mainly through the football. But when I got to Venezuela, all the books about Venezuela always focus on the same topic, which is um, Hugo Chavez's presidency um, and what we've had since then. And uh, Simon Bolivar, who was the, the Venezuelan independence hero. Um, in the 1800s that sort of broke them, broke the country free from from Spanish rule. And I'd normally, after reading books about the culture and, and the history of the country, I'd normally turn to football for further understanding of how the country works. You've got lots of very good books about football in South America that, that help you understand the countries. Um, and, and like Chris said earlier, most of that focus on South American football is in Brazil and Argentina. You got Jonathan Wilson has written an incredible book on Argentina through football called um, Angels with Dirty Faces. And there's plenty of books on Brazilian football. Um, for me, Alex Belos is uh, football, the Brazilian way of life is probably the best. But when I, when I got to Venezuela, there aren't books on Venezuela in the English language that don't focus on Chavez or, or Bolivar. Um, and I thought that was a shame, but there was nothing I could do about it. And this was going back six, seven years now. So um, my interest remained in Venezuela because it's a very curious and interesting country. But in terms of football, I didn't really have any interest in Venezuelan football until 2017 at the um, Under-20 World Cup. They made the final um, and lost 1-0 to England. So obviously I took great interest in that tournament because England were doing well. But also the way Venezuela played, in particular the player I mentioned earlier, Soteldo, was was really eye-catching. Um, and what sparked my, my intrigue is that Rafael Dudamel, that we spoke about earlier, he was the manager of the under-20 team at the same time as being the manager of the senior team. And I, I just thought, as simple as that is, we don't see that often at all and um, it was clearly working to the national team's benefit because there was a clear pathway up through the youth ranks um, and I know it's not like club football where you get teams like 
uh, Chelsea most recently in the past 10, 20 years, where they produce lots of good young players, but have their pathway blocked to to club team because new signings are brought in. Sorry, the first team because new signings are brought in. International football, there's no law that that means that should be the case. But we still see that. We see plenty of players in England who have very long, successful under-21 careers but then don't make the senior team because of what is happening at club level um for example some of the best players at um the world cup that year for england um have yet to make any impact um at club level most notably dominic Solanke, who has been at, at liverpool is now at bournemouth and has become a bit of a laughing stock but in 2017 at a young age he had a lot of talent um and what I just saw with Venezuela, having the same guy in charge of the under-20s and the, the senior team, is that, you know, he was seeing both firsthand and that pathway pathway was there, albeit in different circumstances. Um, so I started taking an interest in the national team back in 2017. And last year, I wrote an article about them for these football times, um, where I explored that philosophy and how they were doing and, and the fact that they were climbing the world rankings and I sort of I set it against the backdrop of what was happening in the country politically and economically as a freelance writer I've always sort of tried to stay clear of writing about topics that are as divisive as Venezuela because you don't want to to alienate your readership and and Venezuela is one of those topics that does divide people so I'd always stayed clear but having written that article for these football times um quite a few Venezuelans that have left the country that can then read and speak English who had seen my article um, got in touch with me and gave me really um, kind feedback and said that it, it was it was nice for them to see somebody writing about Venezuela in English um, giving attention to their country that they thought it deserved and the other thing was off the back of that article I started getting offers from other um, people within Venezuelan football to write other stories and it got to the point where what I was being offered, I felt was worthy of more than just a few articles. And I decided that considering how one dimensional the the global narrative is on Venezuela um, and, and how little people know about Venezuela because of um, the, the focus in the news on the political situation and the economic situation, that I could use football as a way of, of teaching people about Venezuela and, and what it's like to be Venezuelan in the 21st century. Well, that's good. It's good. It's, it's, um, like you said, it's good that people such as yourself take that initiative really to, to write about football and these, I don't want to call, I don't want to call Venezuela lesser countries, but they've certainly not got the profile as say an Argentina or a Brazil. <clears throat> so it's, it's great to see someone like yourself actually doing that and, and bringing it to the attention of people uh, Venezuelan football because I suppose countries like that I don't know I haven't you'd probably be able to comment on more more about this yourself uh, the receivership that you've probably done on previous articles uh, that that you've sorry I'll reword, I'll reword this better so uh, the receivership that you found on previous articles are helping people like such as ourselves, me, Riffwick, other people that are write, writing about things to show that Venezuelan football is the, 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 the history there. Just because it's the less, just because it's the less profile country, there are players there, and it is still a football nation that is worth researching. So yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I haven't, I haven't 
Uh, so I was just say, saying that, yeah, what, what you're saying is exactly true. Like football is growing in prominence in the country um, to the point where it is it is a good um, anchor to look into the country um, in, in more depth. You're exactly you're exactly right. Yeah, exactly. So probably before rounding up the, the podcast, I mean, I probably if, if, if you'd like to, you know, briefly, briefly. Uh, okay, let me put it this way. How or why do you think that people should buy your book? If you, if you have to give an answer for that, what would you tell the people? Yeah, um, yeah so I, I think if you're if you're interested in not just football, but if you if you're interested in in learning more about one of the South American countries uh, where there's there's less variation in the news, because you know if you ask the average person what they know about Venezuela, they are likely to only be, uh, be able to tell you about maybe their name Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro. Maybe they know that there's an oil crisis or there's hyperinflation. So if you if you want to to read about one of the lesser known countries. Um, and it just so happens that football is an accessible way of, of looking into that country for you, then I, I'd recommend reading this book. Like, it, it's not just a book about football. Um, it's also a book about a country. It's also a travel log. Um, you know, I talk about my experiences in Venezuela and my time out in the country um, alongside the football. Um, and it at the heart of it, beyond the football, it really is a collection of, of stories from people whose lives are in Venezuelan football um, and and what it means to them and what the reality has been for them to grow up in Venezuela. And and where can people expect to you know uh, buy the buy or read the book? Uh, so it will be going on pre-order uh, this month. It will be going pre-order towards the end of July. Um, early August for a general release of the 31st of August. Um, the link to pre-order it will be in my Twitter bio. Uh, my Twitter handle is the False Libero. Um, it will be available to buy on Amazon uh, as well as my my own website, a uh, big cartel website. Uh, but if you follow me on Twitter, that's where um, any announcement and news will be. Great, great to hear that, Jordan. And I, I'm definitely looking forward to you know buying a copy as well when when the general release is out. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's it, 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 it does sound like a really interesting book. Yeah. Can I can I ask as well? Uh, how did you come up with the title of it, Jordan? Um. So, uh, Red Wine is the nickname of the national team. The national team are known as Lavino Tinto, which uh, translates as um, red wine, which is the colour of their their national team. Um. And then uh, Arepas is. Uh. It's a it's a you're simplifying it by saying it's like a sandwich um but in the sense of it, it it's something that you fill up with um with meat or vegetables or or fruit or whatever to eat it, it's the closest thing that they've got to a sandwich they eat it day in day out it's sort of a bit like a pit of bread um but it can be used as a, a breakfast lunch or dinner um as well as a snack depending on how big you make it and it's really like a, a staple part of venezuelan um food and and part of their everyday life um and then it's a very religious country it's a very catholic country um so the idea of red wine and bread and holy communion um and with the idea of football becoming a religion um to have red wine and arepas uh, a sort of a very symbolic uh, representation of a holy communion sort of how i i tied the title together 
Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So, yep, that brings us to the end of this episode, Jordan and Chris. So, it's been fun talking to you, Jordan, about the book, about Brazilian football. We try to, you know, make make our podcast as as unique and, you know, as diverse as possible. Diversity is probably the word. And we, we, we would definitely be open to having you again on this podcast, probably maybe two or three months after, you know, you get a few reviews on your book on probably some other topic. We know that you support Southampton because I follow yeah. you on Twitter. So... It, it, it's, I mean, your club is also going well under Ralph Hassan Hotel. I definitely enjoy watching Southampton play. I definitely like Hassan Hotel as well. And I, and, and I, I do have a soft spot for Southampton because they supply good players for the <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, that's how we're becoming known um, most recently. <laughs> But it looks like this. It looks like this um, transfer window. Everton are gonna come for a few of our players. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe, maybe. Being linked <laughs> with um, Pierre Hoiberg. Yeah. Well, apparently, apparently they put an 18 million bid in for him, haven't they? So I mean, that was it. That's the rumours. I know Carlo Ancelotti hasn't has refused to comment on it, Annie. So that makes me. It makes you think. He definitely. The bid's definitely. Um, definitely been made but something tells me Tottenham might nick in there yeah he's a good player he's only 24 but he's he's sort of he's lost his way at Southampton he's got lots of talent but he I think he sort of just ran his road at Southampton um, so whether it's you or Spurs um, I, I, I don't think he'll be with us next season um, but he sort of he shot himself in the foot a bit by saying that he wants to leave to play Champions League football next year, which means unless a team in the Champions League buy him, when he leaves, he's going to look a bit silly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, well, at the moment, at the moment, I don't know if I'd leave Southampton to come to Everton, if I was honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a. I don't know if that's a compliment to us or a, a sign of the difficulties that you're having. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just are you, are you one place below us now? But yeah, it's, it's very close. Like we could still we yeah. could still finish above you and vice versa. But the past yeah. two years, it, it just seems like whoever's been in charge of your transfer policy is like they're playing football manager. They've open, opened up player search and just gone <laughs> yeah. any player interested, and then just yeah, bought yeah. the most expensive ones on the list. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Would you think? So, do you think Southampton are getting because? They were doing really well, weren't they, initially, when he had Pochettino uh, and then he replaced them with Koeman. Yeah. And then, and then after that, though, I mean, you had a couple of goals. With, I think, did, did you finish sixth or seventh? And uh, with Koeman, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, then he came to Everton. But then you seemed to lose your way a little bit then, didn't you, with man- with managers after that? Yeah, it was... Like, yeah, the problem was we... Club, it was... Yeah, exactly. Claude Puel was where it started. And then when we, we fired him, a lot of people were like, why did you fire him? You got to eighth place. And then you saw how he how he t- sucked the soul out of Leicester. Um, and, and it wasn't until he uh, had that uh, to his name as well with Leicester that people sort of understood why we got rid of him. It was misleading that we finished eighth under him because we finished eighth with 46 points. Um, and you know we've got 46 points now with two games left, and I think we're we're 13th. So it was very it was very deceiving 
um, the finish compared to the points. And it was just a massive change in the style of football that we were playing. Um, it's sort of like Spurs this season. You've gone from having Pochettino for like four years, five years, to having, well, even longer, I think, um, to having Mourinho, who's completely different style of football. Um, and that's sort of what happened with us. To go from Kuman to Claude Puel was, was just a, a very, very um, contrasting change that happened with no thought of the ramification past the first team yeah and I noticed as well during that period before that you seem to be there seemed to be a pathway into the first team for younger players a lot at Southampton Southampton quite well known for it for that period really, constantly bringing young players through who actually then just stayed in the first team but then it seemed to drop off a little bit didn't it and, and yeah, yeah, it did massively, and there was there were two reasons for that. Um, firstly, when when we had Pochettino, he what any a lot of the success or well a lot of the success we've had or should have had since Pochettino is down to Pochettino because when he came in, he didn't just manage the first team, but he completely dictated and set the tone for how the entire club was going to be run, all the way down to like under nines. All of the youth teams played the same style of football. They did the same training, coaching drills at academy level. The the transfer policy was set. He set the blueprint for how the club was going to be run for years after he left. Um, and although Kuman didn't play exactly the same style of football as Pochettino, because it, it was different, um, the, the, the sort of standard shape and the overall approach to how we, the club was going to be run, largely stayed in place, um, which was down to the director of football, Les Reed. Um, but yeah. when Puel came in, not only did we step away from the same style of football, which meant that the young players who were previously coming into the first team um, were now, have, were now if they were going to join the first team, had to completely learn a new way of playing football. It was like any youth player couldn't just seamlessly step into the first team they may as well have been a, a signing from the other side of the world because it was a completely different style of football whereas before with Poch and Koeman a player could just step up into the first team and slot straight in because it was the same style of football that yeah. changed when Puel came in and then after Puel we had we had Pellegrino um, but more um, drastic for the club was Mark Hughes who just did not trust um, in the young players at all um, we didn't see we didn't see him give players a chance. Um, he wasn't there long, but it, he very much went for tried and trusted players and tried and tested football that didn't kept us up um, in that season, which I'll forever be grateful for. But I have no idea why we then gave him a permanent contract because yeah. to begin with, we only gave him a contract to the end of that season, and there was a clause in his contract that said, "If you keep us up." you will get like three million. I can't remember the exact amount, but just for keeping us up, he got a few million. Um, and for me, that should have been like job done. You came in, you kept us up. Now let's go and get someone better. But then for some stupid reason, we decided to give him a two or three year contract. And that, that really set us back. So it's not at all surprising to me that now with Hassan Hootel, we're playing a more, uh, more alike to the football that Pochettino introduced all those years ago, that we're starting to see our young players come through to the first team with more of a chance. The problem is um, our academy isn't as strong as it was 10 years ago. Um, the players can step in seamlessly and effortlessly, but they're not 
the same quality as Luke Shaw, Callum Chambers, James Ward Prowse, um, yeah. or at least they they don't seem to be at the moment. Yeah, and I, I really like the manager. I, uh, he was one of the managers that I wanted to get the Everton job when Marco Silva got the job. I mm-hmm. wanted them to go because he just he just left Leipzig, um, and he's out of contract with them. So I, I was uh, when I was on Twitter at the time, I was trying to sort of say that's who I'd have in charge. And given the way you season as well, when you got beat nine 0 by Leicester, and that, yeah, as anything happens uh, in the Premier League, any, anything of that nature happens, it's all like commotion but he's turned the season round gradually hasn't he and I was I was really impressed with you in the first half at Goodison uh, last week I mean probably should have went in at half time five nil up yeah I can't believe we didn't but yeah. <laughs> the saving grace was from, from fairness point of view um, it's uh, it's a good job really that War Prowse missed his penalty because it was never a penalty yeah yeah, it was, it was never a penalty. Yeah. But from open play, we could have been three or four up. Yeah, but you could just see the pressing system that was in place that he's got in place with the midfielders. Our midfielder couldn't cope. You were handing us, and you weren't just pressing the man on the ball as well. You're you're cutting off passing lanes, which is I know uh, that's what he's known for, isn't it? That's why that, that's why that's what he was uh, doing at Leipzig, and that's what he used to call him the. It was more Klopp than Klopp. That, that's yeah. What I'm yeah. 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 So it will be. And the, lo- the lockdown is um. Season. Yeah. Same. Especially. But again, it, it's going to come down to what happens off the pitch. Like our our investment, our ownership is a is a complete shambles. Um. So, yeah. you know, it, it's taken him. It's taken has. I wouldn't say it's taken him this long, as that makes it sound like a bad thing. But it's taken. It's taken until the end of his second. Um, his second season for us to play the football that you saw at Goodison because um, he hasn't been able to make signings that will slot straight into his style of football. He's had to teach the players that he already has his style. And I think that's why lockdown, that's why we've come out of lockdown looking so good because we had four, another four months, basically like a pre-season in the middle of the season. And although they weren't training together, Hassan Hootel wrote a 100-page book on his footballing philosophy sent it out to all the players, um, made them all read it, and then sent video examples of how he wanted us to play. Um, and I, I think I think you can see that we've improved since before lockdown. Um, and it's only recently, in the past six months, I'd say, that we're actually playing the 4-2-2-2 formation that, that Hassan Hootel was so famous for before he came to Southampton. Yeah. One of the things when he was at Leipzig that people were saying at the time um, you might be able to comment on this given the fact that Naby Keita played for Liverpool played for Liverpool now from them is that it's probably one of the only faults of that the players once once they were playing teams and teams were sitting back against them and letting them have the ball the players were again quoted to be saying well we don't know what to do with it because we're so mm. used to playing out our game is based on being out of possession so, oh, I mean, and when you look at Naby Keita and he signed for, once he signed for Liverpool, he's at people I, I still think he's a, a really, really good player. He probably hasn't hit the level that he was probably probably hitting in Germany. But it's because as yeah. well, I think the style of play that he come from, 
be playing for a team now who have a lot more of the ball than what Leipzig did under under Hazard Hustle. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what he does that with Southampton. Because uh, I think that I think that'll be the next level for you to go at. I think it, I think if you overcome that, then I actually think you should be you should be fighting for the top eight or maybe even the Europa League. Yeah, and something that I found really interesting uh, from Hassan Hotel is, I mean, the recent game against Manchester United where they drew two two, they were two one down, and even in the 90th minute they weren't just hoofing the ball up, which which I mean, even if you watch Liverpool, I see them hoofing the ball up, uh, I mean, hoofing it up to the front three, but Southampton were calmly playing it down. They got a clever corner, and they scored from that corner. So that that is something which I mean. Which kind of has made me really fascinated, and even at Leipzig, like Chris said, and and I do think Navigator's, uh, yeah, I mean Navigator's situation is quite weird because, uh, I mean, I mean, the reason why he hasn't really hit hit the strides is because he's been injured 90% of the time. He's played very less for Liverpool, so I, I I don't think it's not because he's not talented. Like Chris said, he's still a really good player in my opinion as well. But at, at Germany, yeah. you and like we said, at Germany, you would see Leipzig more and more often without the ball. They had this quick counter press and counter attacking football. There, you, I mean, you see Nabi Keita release release the ball to Nabi, Nabi Keita, Emil Forsberg, etc. Release the ball to the likes of Timo Werner, who would then hit them on the counter and hurt other teams. So, yeah, and like we said, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm just basically summing up whatever Chris said. I mean. Probably at Southampton we might see you know a much more improved Hassan Hotel if if he gets the players and probably I I hope Southampton might invest a little this summer because I do think they really need to. Yeah, I think it's the um a few players uh, a few players will be needed. I say two or three are needed regardless, but it will also be interesting like the likes of Hoiberg. Um, if he leaves, we need to replace him with a player of his quality but a player of his quality suited to the style that Hassan Hussle, um plays. I don't think we need a big transfer window. I just think we need like a, an efficient transfer window. Yeah, yeah. What, what yeah, would be the, the main position, Jordan, that you think is needed if you had to pick one sort of vital area on the pitch for Southampton that needs to be improved? What would it be? Uh, so, yeah, for just, for just one... Um, Presuming Carl Walker Peters stays, who we've currently got a loan from Spurs at right back, um, it will, we we need a, a defensive midfielder. Um, a lot of what, one thing that I'm quite intrigued about um, the, the the scouting reports that I'm seeing about Hoiberg, having yeah. you know watching him week in week out, a lot of the uh, scout reports that are just number based are saying that his his um, defensive output is is excellent. The stats may the stats may say that, um, but watching watching him in context, he isn't he doesn't look like a tremendous defensive midfielder. He looks like a very busy midfielder who has technical ability. But I wouldn't I wouldn't pigeonhole him as an anchorman. But yeah. we he's playing that role because that's the role we need him to play. Um, because Oriol Romeo is is not good enough, basically. But so defensive midfield, if we had one player to sign, it would be a defensive midfielder. Um, but 
if we don't keep Walker Peters, we also need a right back. So uh, a right back and a defensive midfielder are, are the immediate pressing concerns for improvements to the starting eleven. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. So yes, that that probably brings us to the end of this podcast. Uh, it's been fun, Jordan, talking to you. I mean, I mean, I I was go, going to call you know bye bye on the podcast probably 13 minutes ago, and we we spoke some a good deal on Southampton and Everton as well. And like you said, Southampton is really a fascinating team, always to talk about. So it's 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 been fun, and hope we can have you on our podcast once again in the future. And all the yeah, best. Of course. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And thank you, Chris. Thanks, guys.